All right, everyone, welcome back to the Minnesota Sports Podcast. I'm CJ Baumgartner here on this Thursday, the 29th of October. We are so very close to Halloween and the important day that is uh, this coming Tuesday, the NFL trade deadline, of course, Um, and it'll be interesting to see where the Vikings go from there. Speaking of which, let's uh, just kind of go over here how the Vikings are going to be doing this Sunday, kind of previewing this this big matchup border battle here going on at Lambeau Field, and it's going to be a blowout. It's going to be an entire, it's going to be a blowout. It's going to be insanely bad. It is going to be, I, I, I was messaging a friend earlier, I said, Packers by 100. And I, and as a Minnesota sports fan, hate the Packers. This is going to be a blowout. It is going to not be pretty. Aaron Rodgers is going to wipe the floor with the Vikings. He is going to have himself a field day. He is going to do his entire thing, going to be doing some annoying dances where the fox is going to slow-mo it and going to have him like winking to the camera or something like that or or something or another. I don't know. It, it's going to Aaron Rodgers is going to have a very very good day. Um he's going to be having a very good day here on Sunday and I'm going to tell you why. Um not only because our offense is bad. Uh that that itself is a uh, kind of uh, known already, uh, but and the defense is also bad, but I'm going to tell you what makes it worse for the defense. So if you remember on, uh, if you remember uh, for the defense in week one, before we kind of, like we knew the defense was going to be a work in progress, we didn't know it was going to be this bad uh, until we kind of saw the Aaron Rodgers game and we thought, okay, this is going to uh, not be very pretty. Um, in a sense. We knew this wasn't going to be good, and it kind of got off from there. Now, if you remember, they had a couple injuries, notably to uh, Cameron Dantzler, um, who is the corner, uh, f- who is the one corner the Vikings were missing at the time. I believe it was a hamstring injury or some kind of thing. Kept him out of the game, so the Vikings were a little bit thinner on corner after already being kind of thin in general. They have no cornerback group coming into this game. I mean, they they do not. And according to ESPN's Courtney Cronin, she covers the Vikings for ESPN, um, she she tweeted at practice, uh, Vikings still missing four corners at practice. Cam Dantzler, who is on the COVID reserve list, and Chris Jones are not here. Who Chris Jones is a corner the Vikings just signed because they have no depth. Holton Hill with a foot injury and Mike Hughes with a neck injury went through some stretching but are not practicing. Offensive line trying to out-tough us all with... Uh, with shorts, jerseys, looking 33 degrees, okay, whatever. But uh, but the whole point is, there, there are, we don't have any corners. There are absolutely zero corners on this roster. Now, our cornerback group in general was going to get decimated by Aaron Rodgers, but we are literally throwing guys off the street. Like, I guarantee you, if you put on a helmet and you go down to Egan right now, there's a good chance you might be able to fill in as a nickel corner. I don't know. It, it, there could be a shot. I mean, honestly, I... I the, look, I know hindsight's always twenty twenty, and we weren't, and not everyone was putting as much emphasis on how much this group was going to struggle. I said this group was going to struggle. I was very open about it. I said it's not going to be pretty with this secondary group. I said it wasn't going to be good. Um, you're having, you're relying on a lot of young guys. I said you can't expect rookie corners to come into the NFL and make an impact. So this year they're going to take their lumps, and it's been worse. Like it was, like I knew it wasn't going to be good, but this is way worse than I thought it was going to be. This is awful. This is terrible. This is no good. Very bad. All of those things put into one. This is not great at all. Um, and here's the thing. Why didn't the Vikings see this coming? Why? Why is it the way that this is? Why did they not bring... Now look, they lost Rhodes. They lost Alexander. They lost Trey Waynes. 
and look, that's fine. I, in my opinion, you probably needed to move on from those guys anyways. They were they were not worth the money that you were going to have to pay them. It was just time to move on. It was time to start fresh. Okay, that's fine. You bring in young corners. They're going to take their lumps. Again, that's fine. I don't think there's any issue with that. I think the biggest issue is why they relied so heavily on a very, very, very inexperienced secondary group with no leadership, I might add. So let's let's talk about the, the veterans in this room, in this secondary room, which is Holton Hill. Now, if you remember, Holton Hill was a guy who, com- coming out of Texas, was a pretty strong corner. Um, you, you thought he had a good NFL future. He was probably going to be about a third, maybe fourth-round pick. And then he got multiple weed charges against him. And, you know, he, you know, and for whatever reason, I'm not going to get into it. The point is, is he did things that could get you suspended in the NFL. And if you're a team, you're going to race a red flag over that. So because of his actions like that, um, off the field, he slipped. He was undrafted. He landed a spot on the Vikings. He was able to slip into some playing time. He's been up and down. He's been okay. He's been, he hasn't been great, but he hasn't been. Oh my gosh, get him off the field! Uh, you know, so so that's one of your locker room guys. One of your locker room guys. The other one is Mike Hughes, who has barely been on the field, a first round draft pick um, in 2018, which wasn't a bad pick at the time. I thought it wasn't a bad pick at the time. You always need to inject young corners into your team, and and at the time when you had guys like Rhodes and Waynes and Alexander, you thought this was perfect because you could slowly transition him in. Again, it takes corners. One at least one year, sometimes two. I mean, it took Xavier Rhodes two years to really turn into kind of the shutdown corner he was. And it takes corners time to develop. Look at Jair Alexander with the Packers. It took him a couple years. Now he's doing great. It takes corners years to develop in the NFL. So you can't rely, you know, so it was good to have Mike Hughes kind of come in and learn behind these guys and slowly transition his way in. And now that he's in here, I mean, he's been hurt most of the time. He tore his ACL in his rookie year. Um, he's had neck issues last year. The neck issues are kind of coming up again. And, you know, and look, that's not his fault. Like he can't prevent himself from getting injured. But I will say there have been some things. I know there was reports last year uh, that when J. Ron Kirst got uh, uh, got pulled over, I believe it was for a DUI. I'd have to look into the story uh, again uh, just a little bit more. Maybe I can Google it quick here. But the point was is J. Ron Kirst uh, got pulled over last year uh, in Minneapolis during the Vikings bye week. And um, it, it wasn't gr- and it wasn't great for him. So the story was that he and a – couple guy him and a cup he was kind of pulled over uh he faced dui and gun charges um uh after uh the bye week they were he, he was out you know doing whatever uh i'm guessing at a bar or something like that or at a club and uh you know and, and which you know it's your bye week and whatever as long as you're not doing anything illegal but then the illegal part obviously is the dui and then the unregistered firearm charges um and mike hughes was in the back seat jaron curse isn't on the vikings anymore he's on detroit he he's burned his bridge with the vikings but mike hughes it was reported and they never confirmed this or not so i don't want to speculate too much but was in you know reportedly in the back seat throwing up so the point is and look, I'm not trying to pin him and say he's not a great leader, he's a locker room cancer or anything like that. The point is, is you just don't have much leadership from that corner group. And I don't want to crucify anybody for doing these kind of, like, everybody, like, like be punished, move on, whatever. Uh, you know, I'm not going to indict him for his career or anything. But the point is, is right now, there's just not much leadership, there's not much experience in that defensive back room. So what are you trying to, like, what... How are you expecting these young corners to come along? Because at least when Xavier Rhodes was there, I mean, his first, uh, I guess his first year he didn't have anything. But, but the point was, you know, Xavier Rhodes, when he was, you know, first coming into the NFL, he, 
had some veteran guys around him. And it wasn't necessarily right away, but if you look, Captain Munnerlin was one of the very first signings. The very first signings of the Mike Zimmer era were Linval Joseph and Captain Munnerlin. Those were two big guys that they signed. Well, Linval Joseph, a really big guy. Uh, those were two guys that they signed, and Captain Munnerlin was kind of playing that nickel corner, but it did bring a little bit, not that he was a leader of the room in a sense, but it did bring a veteran presence into that room. And when you look at, you know, it did bring a veteran presence into that room uh, for the DBs. And then the next season, Zimmer brought in Terrence Newman, who, of course, basically was the dad in the room. Like, he was an extra coach who also just happened to play. Uh, so it was huge to have him, you know, and I know he's done some coaching stuff in the past, but it, it's just been, it was huge to have him in the room, putting on the helmet, being in practice, going over through all this stuff, being that mentor. And that, re- I mean, that really helped the cornerback room. It, it really did. And he only was suited up for the Vikings for... I believe three seasons. I believe it was 15, uh, 16, and 17. So yeah, he like he was just a great locker room guy, and the Vikings never had that. And so this kind of just brings it all back to my point: is is why didn't they bring in any veteran, any veteran wide receiver? Did they not like any of them? Now I'm gonna, and I know they said that they wanted to rely on guys like Anthony Harris, Harrison Smith, who are of course key veterans, great locker room guys, all that kind of stuff. But why didn't they? But like they're not. It's just. The corners, they don't have any... I mean, being a safety is different from being a corner. Shocking. Like, Harrison Smith rarely has to get up and match up. I don't think... I don't... I mean, I don't grind tape, so I can't say for sure. But how many times do you see Harrison Smith just straight up lining up against the guy and going against him in coverage? Anthony Harris maybe a little bit more, but again, highly unlikely. Like, these guys... Like, they have the same general... Uh, tasks and same general stuff but when it comes to being specifically specific when it comes to these uh, you know kind of tasks of lining up against the guy press coverage all this kind of stuff Harrison Smith and Anthony Harris aren't necessarily the best guys to kind of be that voice and I know Mike Zimmer is the cornerback guru and I know he does a lot of great work with them but you need but even Zimmer realized you need that veteran presence you need that guy there so why didn't they bring any in my guess is it's going to be money my guess is it was money my guess is the Vikings were in salary cap you know what and they couldn't figure out what they had to figure out how to get cousins. They restructured his deal to save cap space. So they could sign Michael Pierce. And again, they needed to fix that position. I think Pierce is a good player. And granted, he missed the season due to COVID concerns. And that's totally his prerogative. But so they, you know, and you look at some of the moves they made. The Vikings were very hamstrung in free agency because they basically doubled down on the team that they already had and hoped that they could draft and develop um, and kind of fix on the fly, which doesn't necessarily work for teams unless you're drafting in a very high position or you kind of just luck into something or you have a once-in-a-generation type quarterback talent, which the Vikings just don't have. Um, and I think that's basically it is the one of the biggest reasons, I mean, maybe outside of arrogance, like I'm not going to, all coaches, GMs have egos, no matter how much you like them or no matter how much of a good guy they are, they all have egos in a sense, and you kind of have to to be in that position. But they didn't bring any veterans for that position for the corner and i'm gonna guess it probably had more to do with salary implications and them kind of talking themselves into well yeah we could totally develop we could totally draft and develop zim can develop and we'll just hope that we can draft right and they'll they'll kind of come along fast and they'll learn on the job if we give them a lot of playing time and stuff like that and the, the thing is is they haven't even got the playing time they've been hurt so much so this goes on to the next point is kind of you see uh, head coaching and general managing kind of mismanagement there. And so basically it's going to be a bloodbath. And if it is a bloodbath as bad as it was. Now, if you remember, oh, wow, 10, 10 years ago, if you remember a decade ago, 
Brad Childress was on the hot seat after coming off the NFC Championship game the year before the team completely fell apart out of nowhere, um, doubling down on the quarterback and the team that they had before. Um, And it was a game against Green Bay. Now, granted, it was at the Metrodome, but it was a game against Green Bay where Aaron Rodgers just completely steamrolled that team. It was like 38-0 or like 38-7. or It was just basically Aaron Rodgers walked into the Metrodome, walked down the field a bunch of times, and that was it for Brad Childers. That got him fired. Losing to your arch rival, um, getting completely embarrassed, all that kind of stuff. It's been a bad enough season. You just kind of see that as the point of no return where it's like we have to let you go. So is there a chance that if the Vikings lose this game, if the Vikings not just lose, like if they lose like 21-24, like let's even say like 7-21 to or something like that, or 7-24, where it's like they kind of were competitive, like they did enough to slow Rodgers down, but the team obviously just isn't that good. But I'm talking like if the team gets beat like 31 nothing or like 42 20 or something like that and like the Vikings score like 10 points in garbage 14 points in garbage time or something like that you know kind of one of those situations um I don't see Mike Zimmer getting canned after that situation I think the team is stuck buying him by him and I think if they were going to fire him after a bad showing it probably would have been against a winless Atlanta team at home rather than going on the road to playing a uh, playing a great Packers team that's been playing well right now they're the only one loss so far in the year um so I don't see Zimmer getting fired if the Vikings get completely blown out in this game, but I don't like it. It could happen. I'm not saying it can't. I don't see it. Um, but here's the thing: the next three games, this is including Green Bay, are against your own division. So if you look at the Vikings' next schedule, and we'll kind of go into a little bit more in this about the Vikings' schedule. If you look, their next set of games are so at Green Bay, and then they're versus Detroit. So they are at home against Detroit. Now, both these are noon games, but Green Bay's been playing very well. Detroit's been playing mediocre, so they've been playing to about the ceiling of a Detroit football team. And at Chicago on Monday Night Football, and that could be the key one. That could be the key one right there. If the Vikings, you know, kind of stumble along, they go whatever, they're 1-7, and seven, and they go into Monday Night Football, and, they, and Kirk Cousins is a no-show, and the team is a no-show against Nick Foles and the Bears on Monday Night Football very, very good chance that Zimmer gets fired after that one. But I think any of these division games, because they're games in your division. If the Vikings clearly just look like they're the, like they are one in five, Detroit is in third place at three and three and Chicago is in second place at five and two green Bay is five and one. So could you see, I, I could see, the Zimmer getting fired in either the any of these three games, Green Bay because it's your arch rival, you get destroyed, you get blown out, you know, blah blah blah. Um, it just shows that you can't beat Aaron Rodgers, and Aaron Rodgers is clearly the team to beat. It's just not working out. You got to let him go um, after and you know coming out of the bye week and all that kind of stuff where he had this extra time to prepare. Um, versus Detroit, where Detroit's the team you're chasing, I guess to not be last and to say like, look, even Detroit is laughing us out of the building. Even we can't even beat Detroit. Like this is just not going well at all. We just can't even salvage it. And then Chicago. Chicago could be the key one because if he can, if Zimmer can get through those next two games and then they lose, like, without getting fired, I'm not even talking about winning, um, and then you get to Chicago and you lose, now bam, you're 0-4 in your division, you're 0-3 in your last three games against the division, you haven't won a game in over a month, you know, at that point, a month and a half, you just, ha- you, you can't salvage it at that point. So this brings us to kind of the next point. So I can see him losing any of these three games. I, I really could. So this brings us to the next point. I don't 
I don't see any more winnable... Or okay, so there are two more winnable games on the Vikings schedule. Now, that's Sunday, November 22nd versus Dallas, so you're at home. Um, I believe it's a primetime game, but I wouldn't be surprised if that gets flexed to an... It's a 325. I wouldn't be surprised if that gets flexed to a noon start. Um, and then you have at home against Jacksonville. That, I mean... Otherwise, you have... So we already said Green Bay, Detroit, Chicago versus Dallas... Then Teddy Bridgewater comes back to U.S. Bank Stadium. That could be another one where Teddy Bridgewater has a great performance and you look like we gave up on Teddy for Kirk and all that kind of stuff and and whatnot. Uh, Jacksonville, again, if you lose to Dallas or Jacksonville, that could be another. There's a whole bunch of games that could get Zimmer fired. It would be, they have to have told Zimmer that they are not firing him and that they are like actually going to stick with him, which I think the Wolves generally do stick with guys if they give them their word um, to be able to get through this schedule and not get canned because it does not look pretty for them. You know, Jacksonville at Tampa Bay versus Chicago at New Orleans on Christmas Day and then January 3rd at Detroit. There are two winnable games, and that's versus Dallas versus Jacksonville. But there are zero games where I think the Vikings have a, a, will win. Like, if you tell me any of these games, I, I think there's – like, I think Dallas and, and – uh, uh, Dallas and Jacksonville are winnable. I think, like, the way, I mean, Dallas lost to the team. Andy Dalton has not been playing well at all. Dax out for the year, and if you got to play a guy from James Madison University uh, to be your quarterback, I, I don't think that's going to be a good shot for you, especially when the coaching staff in Dallas is already kind of a sinking ship. It's already a mess over there as well. Uh, and messes, like Jacksonville, out. Um, Garner Minshew could be out for a few weeks. He'll probably be back by the time that they play Jacksonville, but the point still stands. They could have a fired coaching staff as well. Um, you know, so there, there, there are ways to see them winning, but that this team's ceiling right now is 13 and three. Now it's not to say they can't win any other games, but the rest of these teams that they're playing are all still technically in the playoff hunt outside of Dallas and Jacksonville. Dallas is even technically in the playoff hunt. So yeah, outside of Jacksonville, every single team can talk themselves into being a playoff contender. This is a tough schedule for the Vikings, and they're gonna they're gonna pay. There's a good chance this I mean, look, there's a good chance this team can go one and fifteen. And honestly, I'm kinda hoping for it. Let's do it. Let's get Trevor Lawrence. Let's do it. Because right now, you know, with the Vikings, we like I'm I'm all out on Kirk Cousins. Like I think it's over. I think it's dead. I think if Zimmer's gone, I think if especially if Rick's gone, dead. Whichever GM is going to come in is going to want to handpick his own quarterback. I if I'm a GM coming in, even if I'm a head coach coming in, and I see Cousins, all the stuff Cousins, you know, has done, you know, basically, you know, not single handedly, but you know, if you just look and see kind of the reputation Cousins has, especially just kind of what he was able to do with this team, um, because <clears throat> excuse me, because this team has pieces around him like outside of some o-line trouble which again the vikings have had solid play at the tackles from reef and from o'neill um garrett bradbury and the guards have been not great and especially when in the nfl a lot of the pass rush is coming from the interior not so much on the edges um it hasn't been great um but there's enough pieces for Kirk to succeed still. You have an offensive coordinator in Gary Kubiak who is smart and who plays to your strengths. You have two wide receivers in Thielen and Jefferson. You have two tight ends. You have Kyle Rudolph, who's a very capable tight end, and Irv Smith Jr., two of whom the Vikings never use. And whether that's on Kirk or whether that's on Kubiak, I don't know. Um, and you have two good running... You have a great running back in Dalvin Cook, and you have a very solid running back in Alexander Madison. And how you can't win with this, how you are 29th in the league in passing, is just ridiculous. 
Hey, but the Vikings are a top five rushing team. That's what they want, right? Um, they are 29th in passing. Kirk Cousins, by the way, is making $29.5 million, which, again, is a going rate for a starting quarterback. But you just can't, but then you got to look at the play Kirk is giving you and say, is this starting caliber quarterback range? If this was some, if this was some journeyman vet who was, you know, playing because you needed a stopgap, you would have benched him weeks ago, weeks ago. But you have this money invested in him, and you can't get rid of him. Um, so, I'm saying that there. Look, there are some reasons Kirk can't. There's some reasons that have inability Kirk have been in the way of Kirk's success. But all I'm saying is, look, and I know I've gotten on people for saying that Kirk needs to overcome X and Y and X and, and this and all that and, and whatnot. And I said he's not going to be able to guide to just overcome everything. But, man, like, sometimes it's like, look, I know the situation isn't perfect. But this is the thing where people say, well, yeah, Kirk Cousins can succeed if the system is set up for him. Well, yeah, Tim Tebow could have succeeded in the NFL. Johnny Manziel could have succeeded in the NFL. Uh, name a quarterback who was a draft bust and say, yeah, he would have succeeded in the NFL if you had had the perfect system around him. But the fact is you don't always have the perfect system around you. And what makes starting caliber quarterbacks different from backups what makes the starting caliber quarterbacks different from backups is the fact that they can sometimes be able to make it work. And I'm not even talking about the top five guys in the league, like Russell Wilson, Drew, like Drew Brees in his prime, Tom Brady in his prime, all that kind of stuff, where there are things around them that they just kind of work around. I'm just talking about like guys like Ryan Fitzpatrick, who are 3-3 three and three in Miami. I mean, he is 3-3 three and three in Miami. Do you think they have a perfect setting? Do you think they have a great offensive line? Do you think they have perfect weapons? No, but their quarterback finds can at least find a way to manage the situation he's in and at least kind of figure out some ways. Teddy Bridgewater, when he was in Minnesota, he did not have a great pass rush at all. Can you name some of the weapons he had outside of Kyle Rudolph? Who do you have? Mm, Cordell Patterson, um, you, uh, Mike Wallace, um, you know, Adam Thielen before he became Adam Thielen, Stefan Diggs before he became Stefan Diggs. So I don't understand this logic that Kirk needs every single piece to be firing on all cylinders. Otherwise, well, what is he supposed to do? Like, he's got to be able to have some accountability. And you got to be able to meet in the middle on that. And that's kind of where I think I am. Like, yeah, Kirk doesn't need this situation to be perfect. He sh still should be able to succeed. But there is also some things to hinder in his ability. And he's also not one of those guys that can just will his team to victory. But I think that's the point. Is if your team is losing and your quarterback isn't that guy and... You just have a lot of money invested in him, and you have just all the situations around it just say that this might not be Kirk's last season as a starting quarterback of the Vikings because of his contract, but this is definitely the last season where the Vikings truly believe that he is their answer for the future. I think it's already gone, but I think this is the last time coming into it where you can think that. So now kind of looking to uh, some of these quarterbacks in the future, you got the Trey Lances, you got the Justin Fields out of Ohio State. Again, Trey Lance coming out of North Dakota State from Marshall, Minnesota. Um, Trevor Lawrence. Um, out of Clemson, uh, the guy from BYU whose name escapes me. There's plenty of interesting quarterback prospects to look at, and we'll kind of take a look at all of them uh, as the day goes on. And like I said, it's it's hard to be able to get away from Cousins based on the contract. Again, he's making $29.5 million, $29 million guaranteed. That number is only going to go up over the next couple of years. The Vikings, um, if they were to cut Kirk Cousins, would still have like um, 30 to $40 million in dead cap money that they will have to pay Kirk Cousins no matter what. And if you're a team, you're not telling the Wilfs, uh, sorry, you're going to flush $30 million down the drain because we don't want to deal with Kirk Cousins. They're going to try and eat the contract a little bit. And this kind of presents you with maybe an interesting situation where if you manage to win a few games and you manage to kind of luck out of uh, of being 1-5 uh, and five or 2-5, and 
14 or 1 and 15 or 2 and uh, 14 3 and 13 kind of that range or that really could get you in the top five um then you got a then you got a chance to kind of maybe say all right well let's take that developmental quarterback not a sense of like a third round developmental quarterback but maybe a quarterback who you're like okay well this guy can be a starter but he's not ready to play right away and there have been some of those guys Patrick Mahomes probably could have played right away but he sat a year behind Alex Smith and Andy Reid was able to groom an offense around him and this all depends on if Zimmer's the head coach going forward or if they whoever they bring in to replace him I'm going to guess whoever they bring in to replace him is probably going to be an offensive minded coach to try and figure out the next quarterback or try and fix quote unquote fix Cousins um, while they look for a new quarterback um, so it all uh, a lot of these factors coming in, but it gives you. But again, if you can get a quarterback who is a starting, like has the potential to be a starting quarterback, like not some third round project, but a but a guy in the first round who's a first round talent who has all this kind of stuff. But you're like, you know, he's probably not, like he's not ready to start on day one. There's a very few handful of guys who are ready to start on day one. Andrew Luck, Joe Burrow, um, some of those guys who um, these are just kind of recent examples off the top of my head. Um, you know, even Peyton Manning probably wasn't ready to start in his first year. Tom Brady sat a year and a half before he started playing. And Peyton Manning in his rookie year set the rookie interception record. So it goes to show you that sometimes guys don't always are able to step in. Now, sometimes they take their lumps and they do all this kind of stuff, but, but it takes a little bit. And, so Patrick Mahomes sat for a year behind Andy Reid. Now, granted, it's kind of a special exception because the Chiefs were already a team built to win. Um, Alex Smith was a good enough quarterback to at least get you to the playoffs and maybe win you a game. Uh, Andy Reid was a solid head coach um, and a brilliant offensive mind. Was kind of able to really uh, figure out Mahomes and be able to kind of uh, hit the gas from the moment he became a starting quarterback. So, you know, again, a little bit of an unfair example, but it gives you a chance to pick your quarterback. Maybe Green Bay and Jordan Love could be the example and give him time to sit and learn and just kind of whatever. And then it gives you time as the Vikings to be able to run out the Kirk Cousins contract for at least one more season. And then you can worry about the dead cap hit in 2022 and then be like, look, we, we're going to incur this dead cap or we're going to find a team like the Cleveland Browns who will, we will trade you a pick to take on this dead cap. I could see that very well happening. The problem is, is the money's all guaranteed. So if you remember a few years ago, Cleveland traded for Brock Osweiler from the Texans, basically, and they received Brock Osweiler and a pick. Um, but basically, and the Browns can say we're trading for Brock Osweiler. We're not, but basically it was a salary dump and they just kind of threw the pick in to be like, we will give you a draft pick just to get this guy off our roster. I don't know if the Vikings will do that, especially if Rick's still running the show because you don't want to kind of admit defeat like that. So we'll see kind of what that goes down the road, but it does give you a chance to kind of kick the can down the road and maybe kind of burn one more year of that contract. You get some starting, you get cousins as a start through your rebuild. So you have a chance to be like, okay, well, this guy isn't very good. But our team, you know, or this guy could start for us, and maybe we can figure out what we have in him, get him on the field. But then this team isn't great right now. We want to fix our offensive line. We want to do all this kind of stuff. So maybe let's just let him sit, and we'll let Cousins kind of get killed uh, for a season or two and stuff like that, and kind of let us uh, figure out what we need to do and kind of what's going on, and then get you know, and then kind of saves him, and then he gets a chance to kind of learn. I feel like Cousins would be a good enough person to at least kind of help him out in a sense. He wouldn't be the quarterback that just wouldn't talk to him at all. He'd be one that would try and help him in a ways and stuff like that and be kind of a guy he can just kind of learn because Kirk can do some things. And I think Kirk has some traits that he can pass down. I just don't think, you know, again, good enough to be a a long-term starting quarterback in the NFL. Um, 
So that's the one thing. So that's kind of my football bit for the day. Talked a lot about it. Let's move on to the best sport in the world, and that's baseball. And that was proven with this World Series. Um, it may have only went to six games. It should have went to seven. We'll get into that in a second. But man, I just wanted it to go into seven games just for the pure back and forth value. Now, I thought the Rays were going to pull off in this series just because, um, you know, just the way they manage things and kind of being that underdog mentality and the Dodgers kind of hadn't found a way to get over that hump yet. So maybe you thought the Rays were kind of a team that was still going to take advantage of that. The Dodgers finally got over the hump. And congratulations to them for finally winning. It took them years, you know, whether it was Dave Roberts or Don Mattingly or kind of whoever was managing. They had years of playoff runs, um, kind of a decade of dominance in their division. And for them to finally get over the hump and for Kershaw to finally get a ring is is definitely pleasing to see. I know some people put an asterisk next to the season, but I think you got to take it for what it's worth. If you're going to count uh, LeBron James's championship as legitimate in a lockout season, and I know a season... Uh, shortened due to a pandemic is a little bit different than a collective bargaining agreement. But if you're going to call that legitimate, um, I'm going to call this one legitimate too. I think it was still a legitimate season. I think the only way that wouldn't have been is if you basically played just a straight out playoff format um, and you didn't finish your season. You just kind of let everyone in and kind of played this very long playoff thing and made it really different. But but I think I think it's still a season that's worth counting. I think the trophy still counts. And if I'm the Dodgers, I'm not letting anybody take that away from me. Um, but the biggest move and the reason that the Dodgers won the World Series on uh, Tuesday night, the biggest reason was the fact that the biggest reason was the fact that Kevin Cash pulled Blake Snell, who was dealing. He was untouchable. Blake Snell, 2018 Cy Young winner, uh, just blasting through this Dodger lineup. They couldn't hit him at all. First trip through the order, I believe he had close to 10 strikeouts through his first two trips through the order. Um, you know, just phenomenal stuff. And that was the thing about Blake Snell. Earlier in the playoffs, he got pulled early in the fifth, in the early sixth, all this kind of stuff. And it came to rear its head again when Kevin Cash came out of the dugout, dugout to pull Blake Snell after giving up one single to the nine hitter uh, with one out in the sixth inning. And you thought to yourself, well, okay, you know, like, I get it. Like, it's the third trip through the order, you know, and, and statistically guys are terrible with their third trip through the order. Um, you know, again, just because you're tired, your pitches don't have as much speed on them, maybe not as much movement as you want, and guys are, you know, and guys have seen you two other at-bats, so now they kind of have a better feel of how to hit you. Um, the, those are all those factors that are legitimate. But man, just the way Snell was pitching, you got in game six of the World Series, when your season's on the line, you gotta you gotta give him a chance there, man. You gotta give him a chance. And it's not just that they pulled him, because they've pulled him and it's worked out and they've gotten to this point so far, and that's whatever, but they brought him in for Nick Anderson, who Crosby, Minnesota stand up. But uh, they brought him in for Nick Anderson, uh, who uh, was once in the twin system before getting claimed by Miami and then traded to uh traded to uh tampa uh has been in he's been kind of this guy who's come in right after the he's been this guy who kind of comes in right after they pulled the starter for this entire postseason he got shellacked immediately immediately gives up a double down the line to mookie Betts. immediately not only ties the game because it was one nothing at that point but brings in the the go-ahead run on a wild pitch and then later in the game um the Dodgers end up hitting another home run to kind of, uh, I believe it was Mookie Betts that hit a home run to kind of just uh, solidify uh, that they were going to win this game uh, in the bottom of the eighth inning. But that's beside the point. The point is that it really that this really kind of brings into the debate of full-on analytics and sabermetrics 
um, versus kind of that traditional old school type of baseball. Because a lot of people, especially in Twins territory, are like Jack Morris would have ripped Tom Kelly's head off if he would have went out to pull him, um, you know, in game seven of the 91 series. And truth be told, yeah. Because you, you're never going to see a performance like that. You're never going to see Jack Moore. You're never going to see a starting pitcher pitch 10 innings, 10 shutout innings in Game 7 of a World Series. You're never going to see that again. And that's why that game is so special. But you, just with Blake Snell getting pulled, like I get that's been the Rays' MO. And the Rays are here because they are the Rays and because they follow this analytics and because they follow the saver metrics and all that kind of stuff. Like the Rays have more, the, the Dodgers have paid more money to their lineup in signing bonuses than the Rays have paid their entire roster. The Dodgers have the second biggest payroll in baseball, and they fought, clawed, scratched their way to win a six-game series against the Rays that should have went to seven games. And who knows if they would have won. So Tampa Bay was on the... I mean, they had a chance to win the World Series. They had a very good chance to win the World Series. They had a very good chance to win game six, now, granted, you could also make the case that the lineup didn't show up either for Tampa, but we're focusing on this pitching move right now. Um, there needs to be a healthy hybrid of the sabermetrics and the traditional sense and the traditional way of managing. And you could kind of see that in the MVP machine. It was a book that kind of talked about um, kind of how uh, analytics people are trying to embrace kind of some of the more traditional senses of the game to kind of try and make a more perfect thing because analytics, you know, and you hear this all the time and I don't want to sound like I'm anti numbers or anti stats and all that kind of stuff because you know, facts, uh, and they don't care about your feelings. But, uh, the point is, is you, you can't just solely, you can't solely, um, base it on analytics alone because you have to deal with people. And that's the one thing, you know, you can have some of the smartest people in the world, but when they only bring up facts, when they only bring up numbers, and they don't try and translate it into a more personable setting, it's hard to understand. So if you're somebody who just flashes numbers about, like, the economy or something like that, or, you know, one thing or another, or some specific sector, like your business numbers or something like that, the normal person isn't, if you just flash numbers at them, it's not going to translate as well as you flash them and say, okay, here's our numbers, and here's how it affects us, and here's how it does this, and here's how it does that. That's the biggest thing. And I know that you kind of see it with a lot of managers who are trying to embrace sabermetrics, and that's why they bring in a lot of former players, is the fact that they can help translate these numbers and all this kind of spin rates and all these kind of terminologies and a new way of doing things, and they can kind of be a liaison to kind of transfer this knowledge and being able to kind of translate it into the younger players, and you'll see it with Baldelli, and that kind of is where we're going to transition to in a second. But you got to figure out some way to bring in that traditional sense of saying, hey, look, he, these numbers give us the best chance to win. This is what the numbers say we should do. And like, like we, we, have, we see this, and the numbers say that I should pull Snell, um, you know, because of all these things. I don't think Sabermetrics probably told you to go to Nick Anderson, just on the way he's been pitching in the playoffs. So that's why I don't think it was based on Sabermetrics alone, but you got to be able to find some way to say, look, I know the stats say this and all this kind of stuff, and the, st the stats are going to help me make the most informed decision possible. And that's the thing about statistics. They are to help you make the most informed decision possible, but they should never drive solely your decision-making. You know, if you look at numbers here and you look at numbers there, they should never solely drive your decision-making. Like if you're buying a car, you say, okay, well, the numbers on this one look way better than the numbers on this one. But then you remember kind of the the 
the kind of the intangibles, the things that you don't realize. You know, oh, hey, I, I'm buying this truck. It's great. You know, it, it has this much mileage. It costs this much and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, oh, wait, but I have to drive 40 miles to work every day. A truck isn't exactly a great option for me. You know, kind of something like that, whereas you got to take these numbers and help it make and help you make an informed decision, but also need to be kind of also don't need to be the sole factor in the sense of, you know, and, and, and here's the thing too, is because Dave Roberts got, you know, blasted last year for bringing in Kershaw when they lost to the nationals in the division series last year. Um, and it was a move that sabermetrics didn't really support and sabermetrics people used as an example to say, see, you got to follow the numbers. You got to follow all this kind of stuff. And then this year really, uh, with that decision, you could see it on Twitter. Twitter was blowing up with not only people who are confused as to why Snell was pulled, but also with, and I know there are people from the outside. There's national people who really don't pay attention to the world series until it, or don't pay attention to baseball until it's the world series and stuff like that. And they can kind of take their pot shots to see the national guys like Cowherd and Stephen A. Smith guys who casually watch baseball and don't real and aren't really in on kind of the, uh, kind of the big divisions that are going on in the game. But it, I think this situation really just ripped open kind of some of the divisions that are in baseball right now, not just between ex players and, and kind of the way the game is now, but between current players, there were current, Current players who were out there who were pissed, who were upset that this move was made, including Twins third baseman Josh Donaldson, who was very upset that the Rays um, pulled Snell. And you could tell it was definitely kind of from a sense of what are we doing here? And I think that's kind of the players have a right to kind of ask what are we doing here when they see some of these numbers stuff. It's like what the heck? Like I see my like if I'm a, if I'm one of the uh, one of the race guys I'm on the field if I'm Kiermaier in center or whatever and I see my guys dealing all game and he gives up one hit and they come out to pull him. I know that's how they do things, but you got to be like, come on, man, this situation it's just different. It just is. Um, I don't know. Um, but players had a field day with this one, including Josh Donaldson, who, by the way, manager, whose manager for the Minnesota Twins is Rocco Baldelli. Where did Rocco Baldelli come from? Oh, he came from the Tampa Bay Rays. He came from the Rays coaching tree. He came from how the Rays do things. <clears throat> and one more one more bit I want to add um, on this is also that the Dodgers follow analytics, too. They just have way more payroll. They're just able to sign. They're able to not only acquire but maintain talent like Mookie Betts. They're able to sign Mookie Betts, Justin Turner, uh, Seager, Kershaw, Bueller, all these kind of guys. You can just rattle them off. The Dodgers are able to retain all of these guys because they have the salary, but they still follow analytics. The guy who runs the front office in in uh, L.A. is the same guy, or was a guy who had a very uh, big influence in Tampa. So let's not pretend that the Dodgers were this old school team. They're a team that followed analytics as well, uh, to the most part. But, <clears throat> but you know, you just look at how they, you just look at how the Rays mismanaged this again. Ripped open all the seams, including Donaldson, whose manager is Rocco Baldelli, comes from the Tampa Bay coaching tree. Um, so you gotta wonder if there's just a little bit of that from the Twins clubhouse, and kind of wonder how that's gonna go. It's just something to monitor, just kind of something to think about uh, with Minnesota, and especially when you look at how Minnesota flamed out in the playoffs, some of the pitching moves they made. And I've already said before that the series wasn't on pitching; it was definitely on the offense not showing up. But again, you look at some of Baldelli's pitching moves. You look at some of the pitching moves the Twins had last year in the playoffs. When you look at relying on guys like Stashek in Yankee Stadium, making not only their playoff debuts, but really with a very 
limited amount of of regular season experience. So you look at some of the pitching moves that the Twins have kind of relied on, and I know it's not all on Baldelli. The front office definitely has a heavy influence in kind of how the team is managed, and Baldelli and and the <clears throat> and Falvey and Levine have kind of formed that brain trust, but. That's been one of Baldelli's biggest issues has been managing the bullpen, has been managing kind of these pitching changes. But I'll, but I've said it before and I'll say it again. Every sport has that issue of one thing. For the NFL, it's clock. For the NFL, it's clock management. It is, you know, this coach can't manage the clock. It always comes back to bite him, blah, 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 blah. And in the NBA, it's rotations. And it could be clock management too, but mainly rotations, what I hear. This guy's rotations are terrible. Why does he have this guy on the floor at the same time as this guy and all this kind of stuff? And that's the one thing. And in baseball, it is pitching. It is bullpen. It is your bullpen moves. That is the one thing. So that's a move every manager gets credit for. It's a very easy pick. And Baldelli, who I think has been a good manager, I think his one biggest issue has been been in those key spots, kind of how do you manage the bullpen. One of the key guys he's managed or who is kind of one of the key guys for the Twins bullpen last year, has been Sergio Romo. Uh, and Sergio Romo, who played, he was a big eighth inning guy, had some closer roles and stuff like that, um, did not get his option picked up. Now, he would have made, I think, believe, four um, and a quarter million dollars in 2021. Uh, obviously, I don't know if Sergio Romo's worth that much for a guy who really doesn't have that much on his fastball anymore. He throws frisbees, and that's great, and all that kind of stuff, but really when you saw when the Twins had to rely on him for a very long amount of innings, it there was just a lot of ups and downs. A lot of stuff with his command was definitely an issue. Um, I, th- I love Sergio Romo. I love the player he is. I love the enthusiasm he brings. I love the energy, all that kind of stuff, um, his kind of clubhouse presence. I love that, and I think if the Twins were able to bring him back for cheaper and kind of minimize his role a little bit, I would be open to that. I just don't think that that's going to happen. I think Sergio Romo's not coming back on the Twins next year. Another player who I don't think is coming back on the Twins next year is Eddie Rosario. Eddie Rosario is not coming back on the Twins next year. I just, I do not see it. I don't see it at all. And I think it's time for the Twins to move on. Like, I think, um, you know, so the Twins in in baseball, here's the process, is you can uh, tender a free agent. So when you put a tender on a on a free agent. You make him a restricted free agent. So basically what that means is, the, is and the Twins did this to Odorizzi. The Twins basically said, it's kind of a de facto franchise tag, or it basically means, we think he's worth this much, and we'll pay him this much. So the Twins, I believe, paid Odorizzi like uh, a lot, of, uh, lots of millions of dollars. I, I'll have to look that up to be sure, because I don't want to, I don't want to say something that's wrong. Um, but as I look that up, the point is, is the tw- uh the Twins did that to Odorizzi where they put a, a price tag on him um, and basically said if any team wants to sign him, they have to give us a, I believe it was a first or second round pick, was whatever tender. You can put a first round or a second round uh, tender on him. Uh, and uh, so basically it means this, there's a good chance that you get the player back because teams really aren't willing to give up that draft pick and kind of outbid you for that player. Um, so... Um, and according to SpotTrack, who uh, is a very good resource when you want to look up player salaries, Jake Odorizzi made $17.8 million for the Minnesota Twins last year. So they first round, so they did a first-round tender on him for $17.8 million. Now, granted, due to the adjusted salary with COVID, he made more like six and a half. So, but whatever. But the point was that the Twins were originally going to pay him $17.8 million um, for a first-round tender, and basically said, if any team wants to sign him to a different contract, we will, uh, you know, you'll have to give us a draft pick. And Jake Odorizzi basically looked at the situation, said, no team's going to really sign me, especially not for that. They're not going to pay me more per season 
and give up the draft pick. So I'm like, I'm just going to come back to Minnesota. And it's basically a way of kind of cudgeling players to kind of stay with your team. I don't think Jake Odorizzi is going to come back, or at least if he does, it's going to be for a fairly cheap number. I think he's going to hit the open market and we'll have to kind of see where he goes. But, um, and that'll be another interesting one is kind of what happens to Jake Odorizzi. But Eddie, back to Eddie Rosario is, I don't know what his tender specifically is going to be. Um, and I think... With Eddie Rosario, I just don't think it's worth it to even bring him back. I don't think it's worth even considering bringing him back. Even if he was just a restri- even if like you didn't have to worry about this tender, I just don't think he's going to be. Re- I, I, I don't think he, he would come back at all. Um, I'm looking up here uh, his ten- how much Eddie Rosario would cost if he was tendered. Um, I believe his. Um, trying to see here um, how much if Eddie Rosario would have to make if he was on a tender and again uh, looking at spot track spot spot track spot rack whatever spot track um, Eddie Rosario would be scheduled to make 11 million dollars in 2021 the twins aren't going to pay that for Eddie Rosario uh, basically what that means is they're going to move on and here's the thing. It's really easy for the Twins to move on from Eddie Rosario. It is a log-jammed left field. You have guys like Brent Rooker. You have guys like Alex Kirilov. You have Trevor Larnick, who's a first-round pick. You have even, you know, dark horse of Royce Lewis, who I know has been at shortstop primarily, but could transition to the outfield if the need is there. There is a logjam, and a lot of these, Rooker uh, and Larnick, are both guys who are very suited to play left field. So I think this is a great I think it's a great opportunity for the Twins to just say, thanks for the memories, Eddie. You were a great player. You were fun to watch, a lot of energy. Go be that for some other team. We're going to move on. And I think with Rosario's value too, I mean, he is a, he he does bring value to the team, but I think when you look at the money you're going to pay him and you think of the value that some of these other young guys, because at some point you have to call up these prospects. You know, you have to call these guys up, and I think the Twins were willing to do that in 2020. I think they'll be more willing to do it with a larger sample size in 2021. Royce Lewis is on the doorstep. He'll be here soon. Kirilov is already here. There's not. There's a very little chance that Kirilov doesn't make this team out of spring training, especially given the situation where Rosario probably doesn't come back. So, anyways, it's fun to look at the... Now that the season's over, free agency is officially kind of on its way, and now we get to look at all the offseason moves the Twins are going to make. Um, so now, kind of finishing up, we're going to talk about the Wolves here quick. Um, and the only reason I bring them up, just as we kind of finish off the show with them, is... The fact that there was kind of, as the draft continues, pro days are going on, all that kind of stuff. Um, this is an article from Hoops Rumors, and it's kind of based off some uh, other reporting that was done uh, by the Strib and by the Pioneer Press and that kind of stuff. So uh, I'm just going to read it here. Uh, a week ago, Timberwolves president of basketball operations, Gerson Rosas, acknowledged that the 2020 dra- draft class features no clear-cut top choice. However, it sounds like the team is comfortable with its options. On a Wednesday conference call with reporters, including Chris Hines of the Star Tribune, executive B- VP Sachin Gupta said the Wolves are prepared to make the first overall selection. Quote, We feel pretty good about where we're at. We're ready to pick, Gupta said. There is still information flowing in from different prospects. The NBA is doing a great job trying to salvage the draft combine process and pre-draft process, but we really feel good about where we're at at the top of the draft and are ready to pick if we have to. End quote. 
As Gupta alluded to, teams still have a few weeks to conduct up a total of 10 private in-person workouts with prospects, and those sessions may influence draft day decisions. Still, it sounds as if the Wolves have a pretty good sense of which player they'll draft first overall if they keep the pick. Trading out of the number one pick also remains a possibility, according to Gupta. Quote, we're having conversations, and by those conversations, we'll get a better sense of what the number one overall pick is worth, he said. Those conversations are happening and will continue to happen, and we're wide open. But I know we're very happy picking at the top, but certainly teams are inquiring and we'll get back to them. End quote. And then the article finishes off by saying Anthony Edwards and LaMelo Ball have been identified as most frequent as presumed Minnesota targets at number one, though there's no guarantee the team will opt for one of those two guards. The Wolves have been keeping their cards close to the vest, and this year feels a little like 2013 when four or five prospects were still at play for the number one overall pick leading up to draft day. We'll find out in three weeks what the club ultimately decides. So yeah, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of stuff going on with this draft. Um, again, it's a blessing and a curse for the Wolves that this draft doesn't have a clear-cut star in the sense of it gives the Wolves a chance to draft a very good player as a role player and kind of don't have him come in with that mindset that you're going to be the star, you're going to be all this kind of stuff. But also it's bad because there's no clear-cut guy that a team is going to sell you the farm to get the number one overall pick for. It'll be interesting. I still think the Wolves should lean with Edwards if they aren't able to trade the pick. I think first option should be trade. Second option should be taking Edwards, um, if possible. And one last thing I'm going to finish on is the fact is that uh, Doc Rivers was announced as the coach in Philadelphia, and now it was announced that Daryl Morey is going to be running the front office. Now, Daryl Morey, uh, you know, outside of the whole Hong Kong thing, uh, his main thing was that he was the GM of the Rockets. And who was in the Rockets before leading the Wolves? Gerson Rosas. So there is a connection there. The Wolves have uh, been willing to do trades with Houston before when you look at the trading of Robert Covington. Um, you know, so... The Wolves have some options here, and a guy, you know, a guy like uh, Maury, especially with a team like Philadelphia, who's kind of at a crossroads. They're bringing in Doc Rivers. They're bringing in Maury, so maybe they're kind of they're not ch- going to blow it up, but a chance to kind of maybe try and retool this roster, kind of to what their vision is going to be. So you could expect a lot of change there. You could expect maybe they'll be willing to trade. Heck, maybe they'd be willing to uh, get a number one overall pick. I still don't like Ben Simmons. I really don't like Ben Simmons as a player. I I don't think the Wolves should trade for him, but it's an option to look at. And I know a lot of people on Twitter have been uh, speculating that Simmons would be another kind of player to bring in kind of with Cat and D'Lo. All right, well, that does it for the Minnesota Sports Podcast this week. How many points will the Vikings lose by on Sunday? I don't know. I'm going to guess it's a lot. And um, more free agency breakdown, more Vikings speculation, um, kind of as the season goes on. We'll, uh, again, keep you updated on the Wolves and Wild as their stuff uh, as their stuff happens. Looks like both those, uh, the NHL and the NBA, are looking at seasons kind of coming uh, kind of coming towards Christmas Day to the new year. Um, I'm going to guess it's probably going to be more in January, but we'll see. They'll, they're going to try and push it as early as they can. Um, and, yeah, thank you guys for listening, uh, and we'll see you guys next week here on the Minnesota Sports Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Minnesota Sports Podcast. You can find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Be sure to leave a five-star review and share the podcast on social media to help spread the word.